Hello and welcome to the Disney Animated Cannonball, a podcast where I, Talon Lee, he, him, uh, and, and that's my cute me, Foxley, she, her, I'm here, uh, attempt to speedrun my way through the dregs of the Disney Animated Canon <laughs> with this episode's installment of a New Yorker cartoon that someone cast a spell on and it came to life. <laughs> a haunted DreamWorks movie. Robots' lesser cousin. I oh oh get robots the dream oh god I forgot about that one oh uh, no Fox it's not it's not DreamWorks it's one of the other studios that you don't know the name of oh robots wasn't DreamWorks dang yeah no that's about the the tier that this is this feels like a lesser to DreamWorks studio ripping off DreamWorks it does not feel like Disney trying to find their feet. It feels like you're browsing the DVD rack at the Disney store, and in amongst them all, there's one that has a big yellow starburst over half of the title, (laughs) which says, number one big feature. Imagine if you, all you wanted for Christmas this year was the DVD of, of like, the new Pixar, what was Pixar doing? Like, Monsters, Inc. or Toy Story 2, or whatever. Go, fuck it, doesn't matter. Imagine if all you wanted was that, and all your parents internalized was just, it's the new Disney one with the 3D, and and instead you can't meet the Robinsons. This is the VeggieTales satire tier <laughs> of, a, of a Disney movie. This is 2007's Meet the Robinsons. But before we can account fully of the movie, I must provide a recap of the plot within 60 seconds. Oh yeah, this is your burden this week. Yeah, and it's actually going to be kind of tricky. Because your time starts now. Something actually happens in this one. Lewis is a 12-year-old inventor whose science fair display is interrupted by the intrusion of a time traveler warning him about a bowler-hatted man who might steal his science fair experiment, which he definitely does. The time traveler then takes him to the future to prove a point, and they then strand themselves there like a pair of big dumbasses. The villain breaks the stolen experiment, then travels into the future to retrieve Lewis to repair it, whereupon he reveals that he was Lewis's old roommate, conspiring with a runaway evil AI in a bowler hat invented by Lewis. The movie takes a sharp turn into being a zombie hat apocalypse, and the evil AI hat's taking over the world until Lewis jerry-rigs the time machine and goes back in time to fix things and undo his future mistake, telling an extremely confused message about how exactly personal responsibility and a need to move on intersect with literal, actual time travel and going back in time to prevent the problems ahead of time. This whole movie is Lewis's fault, basically, and is solved by him refusing to do the instigating incident. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much, I guess. Alright, ding, 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 ding. You probably made it in time. I never count. And with that summary out of the way, the double take. This is where we talk about our previously existing relationship with this movie. Talon, do you have one? Yes. (gasps) A friend of ours, a beloved friend, a dear friend, a friend for whom I was the best man at his wedding, I think? No, I gave a speech at his wedding. Uh, uh, um, he, he loaned us the DVD to watch. And I didn't. But he thinks it's really funny. This is wild to me. Yeah. I don't remember this at all. No. I've seen this. Yeah. But it wasn't based on borrowing a DVD. It wasn't based on Pendix lending it to us. No. That's that's weird. All right. Sorry, Pendix. Movie sucks. <laughs> well, I will say, pre-existing relationship, when you break this movie into its funniest moments, it has some really funny moments. And it definitely has Pendix's specific flavor of funny in it. 
Yeah. I mean, it's not like there's nothing funny in this movie. Yeah. The its real issue was that there's nothing likable in this movie. The uh, the funny things we're not supposed to like are often funny. The funny things we are supposed to like are not funny or likable. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean most of the characters. This movie is also based on a book. My take on this from my initial viewing left me with the feeling of I'd kind of like to see that book. Because the guts of this are an interesting story. Now, my version is is a little bit weirder, and it may include getting a crush on your time-traveling son, but... Alright, so, uh, I guess because I'm the person who read Meet the Robinsons source material, which in this case is, um, a meeting with Uncle Robinson? Uh, which a, is a Day 19... with Wilbur Robinson. That's right, A Day with Wilbur Robinson, which is a 1990s kid's book, Uh-oh. which features literally no time travel at all. What? The sequence where old grandpa dude is looking for his teeth because they're buried in the yard and you ricochet through meeting a dozen different weirdos with some newspaper quality jokes, that scene is the closest you get to the book with the eventual discovery of the teeth at the end. That's it. That That's the book. Wow. That's... Okay, so uh, I guess credit to the screenwriters who evidently are responsible for everything that was kind of compelling about this story because that was not the original, I guess. Oh well, I'm glad I never bothered now. And then, from there, we move on to the Yikes Door slash product of its time. Right. Well, it's product of its time in a lot of ways, mostly how it looks, uh, all the jokes, definitely the music... The fact that somehow it is a Disney movie, despite the fact that if you showed this without that context to anyone and told them it was Disney, they would call you a liar. <laughs> there, there is nothing like it. It doesn't have the quality. It doesn't have the the artness. It doesn't have the sincerity. It well, okay, I guess coming immediately after Chicken Little, it ble- I believe it was a Disney movie, but otherwise. I'd like to hold up a finger regarding that question of sincerity, because there is a detail in the production and making of this that will, that coloured certain elements of this. What I would say is, I do not regard this as a product of its time, as in, this is a movie about 2007. This is a movie about 1980 or so, and uh, that will go into more later. I mean, it's very, all the future is like 60s retro. Yeah, 60s and uh, 50s retro futurism. What's the word for that? Z-Rust. That's the one, yeah. This, the, the future in this movie is hardcore Xerust. It's extremely the Jetsons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh god. What if they wanted to make a Jetsons movie and they wound up making this? That would explain a lot, like, why they put time travel into it. Just some quick bullet points on the Yikes door from me. Uh, North Montana. Yeah, that that's a bit of a yikes. I guess America invaded Canada at some point. Or annexed it, or something else happened Is to that Canada. better? But the point is that Canada just doesn't exist anymore, and America is okay with that, yep. or doesn't seem as remarkable They seem all. to think it's funny. Mm-hmm. And it's happened within, like, 15 to 20 years. All right, my turn for a big fat yikes. Big fat yikes! Yeah. Uncle Joe, is it? Uncle Joe or Uncle Jack, whatever. The, the walking, well, the not even walking fat joke. Not even walking fat joke, yes. We have transcended the chicken little walking fat joke, and now our fat joke is just a guy who is too big to get out of a chair and appears to have the mentality of a toddler. 
like uh, uh, freaks out and starts sucking his thumb when it seems apparent that he will not get the food he was promised. Yep. This is grotesque, and I... I mean, okay, there is the chance that they were trying to depict someone who actually has a developmental difficulty, but I don't think that's what was going on here, because it's clearly supposed to be hilarious, and just part of the wacky family shenanigans. Um, So I am calling this just an extended fat joke, and it's the worst one we've had. It's vile. Once you start realizing what fat phobia is, and the way that it is a pattern of systems and behavior, and the way that certain references and limiting the role of fat characters is the way it is expressed, you come to realize how omnipresent it is and how much Disney in particular fucking hates fat people. I, you'll, you'll recall me excusing this in a lot of the early movies. Um, and mm-hmm. in particular, I defended the hippos in Fantasia. Yeah, I was thinking of those too, yeah. And compared to this, I still will. Yeah, those hippos are at least having some fun. And it's, like, the the absurdity is the idea in that. And the absurdity is funny. It's not, what if someone was fat and, and you know, therefore just inhumanly pathetic? Yeah. Uh, but this, the, the, the fat that we've gotten out of the last several Disney movies we've talked about is... Going past mean-spirited and into, like, vindictive. <laughs> yeah. It, it's it's punching down in a way that's very hard to categorically express without leaning on other forms of oppressive media structure. Mm. Uh, there's a Tarantino angle in this movie. Is, is that something to do with fate? No, that's the, that's the shot from up in a car boot looking up at people. Oh! <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, um, the, and and on the one hand, I do greatly appreciate that when they made a reference to the Frank Sinatra Rat Pack era, sorry, ra- when they made a reference to the Frank Sinatra Rat Pack era of Vegas Swing, they also made the underscored point of, and they were all criminals. Uh, I, I appreciate that admission, but it's a little weird. <laughs> it's, uh, I guess that's in the humor that was here for the parents mm. uh, section, which, I mean, you know, I like the frogs. Pretty much everything to do with the frogs was actually funny. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that, ironically, is mostly funny because of how it's removed from the plot. You could extract it from this movie and just run it on its own. Here's the other thing. Mm -hmm. The big yikes of sorts. This movie fucking hates kids. This movie does not respect kids. Mm. It does not engage with kids on their level. And the second that Lewis realizes that he is a dad to another kid, he asserts himself over him ignoring the fact that that is a kid just like himself who has some degree of empathy. Once he is in that category of parent to kid, bam, that's it. The kid does not deserve respect. See also the way that the weirdos engage with things like unwanted touching and grabbing even as Lewis is protesting. Yeah, I was uncomfortable with that. It's, uh, 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 and, and no one is explaining things to him. No one is explaining anything that answers his questions. And the movie doesn't think that that's a problem and all the kids in the science fair are largely there to be objects of comedy for engaging with a science fair. It is a movie that, like, it hates kids, but don't worry, because that one kid is the fucking renaissance. (laughs) To be fair, all the kids in this movie are awful, so I would hate them too. 
Yeah, but the movie's the but, one who uh, made those kids up. Yeah, that's that's kind of on you, movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I so I I guess if it's not clear from the discussion so far, I kind of hate every uh let's say good aligned character in this movie. Almost every protagonist character in this is some variety of awful, and the closest thing to an excuse the movie gives to any of it is that they are what we would normally code as neurodivergent. Yeah, but if this is your if this is supposed to be your big happy family of neurodivergent people, you have done them a disservice by making them all awful. Yeah, and also the only reason they get to exist this way is through the largesse of uh the person that Elon Musk fantasizes he is. <laughs> there is that too. Yeah, this I mean now that you mention it, I I feel like we should almost yikestorm this for capitalism, because there's a lot of I mean, I don't expect the movie to have deep opinions <laughs> on the role of money in society, but it's very, um... Yeah. It, it's very the kind of utopia you only get through excessive capitalism worship. There was an overgrown, grassed over orphanage that had just had its doors and windows battered over with boards. So for all that you had this beautiful utopian future, you also had a derelict building through the entire time of it that no one bothered to fix up, restore, repair, reuse in any way. Because we got new shiny things. And uh, the celebration of mass production. Yeah. Uh, in particular, like, they use those keywords repeatedly, which seems odd to me, because, like, that's not that's not important to the discussion of this guy's inventions. It wouldn't matter if it wouldn't have mattered if they'd only made three or four of them. Yep. You still invented a fucking time machine. Uh, it's, why Why even bring it up? Why be so into factories? And it's not totally what I'd like. The uh, the evil bowler hat future is also like an industrial uh, vision. It's just a hellscape as opposed to the, the human capitalist future, which is blissful. It's almost like saying, what if the wrong companies were giving us the future <laughs> and not, say, a whimsical, funny, charming company that does wacky <laughs> things? Well, look, it's a peanut butter and jelly gun. <laughs> I would like to also point out as far as product of its time, like really specific, tiny window of time. 2007 is possibly the only year you will find a movie that acknowledges peanut allergies exist and that they aren't bullshit made up to make the lives of parents with children going to school hard. <laughs> mm, you're right. If that came up now, the allergy itself would probably be the joke, huh? Yeah. The joke here is, like, he accidentally uh, hurt someone in a way that he couldn't have thought of because he's a thoughtless little twerp. He is a thoughtless little twerp. That's... Right, we're getting out of Yikes Door talk now, but I'll, I'll save further character bitching. But it, we'll just do, like, an itemized list of the characters and why they'll suck and are boring later. Moving on, we then go to animation and making. Ha! Ah, this is cheap and hideous. This movie was originally, the production began in 2004 with a plan for a 2006 release. It yeah. came out in 2007, which means that there was a three-year gap between this and Chicken Little. Right! I, I thought that, that Chicken Little was quite early 2000s last time we spoke about it, and then you said 2007. I was like, wait, what? Yeah, well, goes to show that Disney was struggling to find their feet. The director, Stephen Anderson, was originally a storyboard artist for the animation studio. Uh-huh. He resolved to direct, direct the film because he had a personal connection to Lewis, since they both grew up adopted. And hopefully a big puzzle piece just slides into place. 
Yeah. Well, okay. This is like the core of the interesting story. I I rather like a good close time loop. This isn't a good close time loop, <laughs> but it is a close time loop. Uh, and like that that basic premise of like someone realizes that they don't need to change themselves to fit in with a boring family because they could start their own family that is spectacular and perfect and, and you know, becomes a home for all the weirdos. That's all really good stuff. I just wish they'd made the weirdos more likable. Mm-hmm. But knowing that this is basically an adopted person making a narrative about the struggles of being an adopted kid... A whole bunch of stuff here makes a whole lot more emotional sense. Especially the really weird old 2007 you get with, you know, a fucking orphanage where people leave kids on the front doorstep in, in the middle of a box. city in a cardboard box. I mean, I don't know how uh, how surrender under distress conditions normally takes place in America. Mm. Uh, I have no connection to this, not industry, I have no connection to this field, to this institution. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does, it, it has the same imagery as we use for, uh, you know, abandoned on a doorstep on a stormy night from stories from like the 40s and 50s and shit. Yeah, exactly. It's super old. Knowing knowing that this is something that a man 20 years older, 30 years older than oh, Lewis. Oh, yeah, I see. Suddenly all the hallmarks and the signifiers and the even just like the, the type of tech Lewis is making is all gramophones and speaking tubes. It's not electronics. It's not computers the way that one would expect in 2007. I mean, in Chicken Little, every kid in that class had a, a, a mobile phone. Yeah. Uh, and in this, I don't believe any of these children have ever seen. Does anything actually date this movie? Uh, Aside from the orphanage itself? Like, maybe it's just meant to be that old, because there's nothing about it that feels particularly 2007. The physical, chunky uh, uh, radio that they're listening to in the orphanage? The the look of the landscape surrounding the area, which is full of greenness? Like, yeah, th- this, is, this is a movie from an older time set in 2007. I have a big beef with a couple of movies that are like this which are clearly millennials working out their feelings about their parents, but setting them as if they're today. So you wind up with these parents who are meant to be in their, like, late 30s, who are absolute goddamned boomers. This is my one complaint about Gravity Falls. Like, Mabel is a child from our childhood. Yeah, yeah, she is not a kid from 2012. Nope. Uh, um, similarly, Mitchells versus the Machines. Haven't seen it, but... I, I have, and, like, it's a really good, charming movie, but it is not the fuck about now. It is not about the launch of a new smartphone app in 2020. It is about getting into fights with your dad who was born in the 40s, in the 80s. Well, that's what I'm getting at. Like, is is there anything that actually states this movie is set in 2007? Because it's, like, maybe it's just supposed to actually be older. So the closest we get is we do get a date for the future, which is 2037. Oh, we do, don't we? Yeah, okay, and he's an adult there, and he's, like, maybe 30. Maybe? Well, you gotta remember, he starts at 12 in 2007, so he'd be born in 1995, which means by 2037, he'd be 42. There's no way he's in his 40s. <laughs> but uh, everyone looks like a weird plastic person in this movie, because... Mm, they still 
They, mm. they look like the characters from Hotel Transylvania with the monster makeup off. <laughs> they do. They, they, yeah. They, they look like. I mean, they look like DreamWorks, DreamWorks characters from two thousand and seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you know how in the early Pixar movies they well. I mean, in just about all the Pixar movies, they picked toys or bugs or big hairy monsters or toys again. They did everything they could to avoid putting humans on the screen for a significant amount of time. And that was the right choice. Then they did The Incredibles, which, peeking forward in my notes, was the visual inspiration for the humans in this movie. That explains a lot. This does absolutely look like cheap Incredibles. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. This looks like The Phenomenals. The $4 DVD that your grandma picked up at the supermarket doing the groceries, because isn't this that new one that every kid likes? Originally, the studio was going to use Joyce, the author's original graphic style. Uh-huh. But he was working on another movie at the time, Robots, mm. by Blue Sky Studios. That's who did Robots, alright, that's I, a callback. I felt I had to provide that, because <laughs> anyone who heard that opening was like, what the fuck is robots? Like, go, go look it up. This movie exists. There was a McDonald's tie-in. No, I remember. <laughs> yeah, that's probably why I remembered. Actually, do they also do uh, Valiant or Valorant? Or? I don't know. No, Valorant's the game. Valiant is the. It's about a pigeon. Yeah, well, good for them. Might have been DreamWorks. Might have been Blue Sky. I don't know. I've never heard of Blue Sky attached to anything. The point is that they, the actual <clears throat> artist they were going to use as their visual reference point, was working on a different movie being made by a much lesser studio. So in order to avoid looking like they were doing a copy of the other studio's thing, they opted instead to... <sighs> okay, here's the pastiche of visual aesthetics they went with. Technicolor movies, 40s architectural design, uh-huh. the Apple Think Different campaign. Yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> uh, Pixar's The Incredibles. Uh-huh. Alice in Wonderland, Cinderella, Peter Pan, and Warner Brothers cartoons from the 1950s. I mean, you can say that, but that doesn't mean I have to believe you. <laughs> I mean, you just named most of animation history in that breath, so... <laughs> hey, fuck off. France was doing stuff. Japan was doing stuff. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you just named most of America's animation history right there. <laughs> No, not most of it, just a very specific stretch of it, which just so happened to be these animators' childhoods. <laughs> and yet what they wound up with was grass that looks like plastic. Mm-hmm. But don't worry, if you thought this time with this whole focus on an adopted kid, what we're getting is an auteur's vision, nah, wrong. Because in 2006, Walt Disney acquired Pixar. As a result, John Lasseter became the chief creative officer of both Pixar and Walt Disney Animation Studios, and when he saw an early screening for the movie, he told Anderson the villain wasn't good enough, made suggestions for changes, and 60% of this movie got scrapped and redone. The villain was improved, given a sidekick, a dinosaur chase was added, and the ending was changed. Oh, how do you unpack that? Okay, this isn't like Chicken Little where I was mad and I was like, "What? why didn't you give... I want to see the original of this. I don't think I want to see the original of this. Because the villain is one of the only things that works. I think I would like to see the original version of this because the time travel back to see your own adopt... your, your own biological mother giving you up feels like a moment that an adopted author has been stewing on for a long time. And if it doesn't land for a general audience's movie... I'm okay with that. I still want to see what they would have done. Well, that's the other thing. I want to know in what way the ending was changed. Because that's exactly. the thing. I don't... Okay, I mean, 
the entire emotional arc of the story doesn't work if he sees his mum. Yeah. So that's the only way that scene could play out. So what else got changed? Was it that? Did he look originally? Am I the asshole for thinking that you shouldn't look? I... It would you, you, yeah, the see, original author have looked? I want to know that now. There is a mystery here. There is a mystery mm. here about art that is coming from a really personal place. And I don't want to say necessarily that that's a good enough reason to have stuck with it. Especially because the dinosaur chase is one of my favorite bits of this movie. But also, I hate all the people who are meant to be endangered in the dinosaur chase. There is that, yes. So, I... Like... It's a mess. It, it is It is an incoherent, shouting mess. Which is as good a point as any to talk specifically about the characters, I guess. Which is great, because this is also where <laughs> all the names are lined up because of their voice actors. Oh, yeah, good-o. So, I mean, for me, the voice talent in this movie was a tremendous amount of whatever. I can see three names in this list that you would have any recognition for. I I kept waiting for, like, a fun cameo or even just, like... Uh, a voice actor, you know, Evergreen, like a, you know, a KMR or a Frank Welker or, or a David Ogden Steers or, you know, anybody with three names. But I just, I don't, I don't think I recognize anyone. Um, and despite that, I also don't think I was impressed by anyone. On the three names front, I can do you a Tracy Miller Zanecki. Not someone I recognize, but uh, all right, she does have three names. Who is she? Lizzie. God, who's Lizzie? I don't recognize the name of Lizzie. <laughs> okay, yeah, so uh, uh, context for those who haven't seen this movie, one of the problems you're going to have here is that this movie has a million characters and they all have precisely one facet, which is the way in which they are a weirdo. And yeah. it's not like a distinctive, you know, oh, uh, this one hyper-focuses and this one uh, catastrophizes. And it's nothing like that. It's just like, you know, this one is constantly using a paint gun that can spit out pre-assembled famous works of, of paintings into a frame. And this one builds model trains that are large enough to kill a man. Uh, it's, they're not real quirks. They're, like, stupid cartoon quirks. Which makes all of them completely unrelatable and boring and dumb and just... They're all... We get introduced to them all at lightning speed, too, so, you know, if you thought you were gonna spend time with these people and catch any kind of, like, emotional resonance with them. Nah, forget about it. The movie is essentially Meet the Poochies. Oh, God, it is! That's perfect! I will, however, give you three names from the voice acting cast. One, Tom Selleck voices Cornelius's older self. <laughs> See? That's a legitimately <laughs> funny joke. That's funnier than anything that was in the movie. It's even funnier than you think because they made the joke of uh, uh, of the kid saying his dad looks like Tom Selleck, uh -huh. which he absolutely does not. No. Before they had ever cast Tom Selleck and they had no plans to. Lassiter saw this, thought it would be hilarious if Tom Selleck did voice him and asked Tom Selleck for a favor. All right, look, score one for Lassiter. I'm sorry. Uh-huh. You also have Laurie Metcalf as Lucille Crunklehorn. Oh, the everyone mom. Yep, the, the one with all the patches on her arm. And you do also have the fake superhero cousin is Adam West. He is Adam West? Okay, that's that's a good bit. But I liked it. He's not Adam Westing it quite hard enough, I think. 
I think you might not be used to just pure Adam West straight from the pipe, as it were. <laughs> straight from the pipe. I think you might not be ready. I think you might not be used to Adam West straight from the glass, as it were. He's he's a he is a potent effect. <laughs> but other than that, I, I want to try it though. I, I'm tired of of the Adam West with the the chips that have melted a little bit and <laughs> watered it down. Uh, yeah, but other than that, it's just a bunch of. And by the way, this is not to dismiss any of these voice actors. These are all names you are going to see. Like, if you open up these IMDb pages, these are all voice actors who have been the second most important person in hundreds of movies. Oh, I'm sure but they're all great, but... Also, they're almost all doing double or triple duty. With all of the enthusiasm that you would expect from actors being asked to carry three parts in a movie with no character development. Like, yeah. I, I don't blame them. Well, no, you know what? I blame whoever voice acted our main character. Because that... Is that an actual child? Jordan Fry. How old is Jordan Fry? Because if Jordan Fry is like 14, then I will forgive Jordan Fry. Jordan Fry would be the same age. He was born in 1993. Okay. So he was 14 when this movie was All right. I have to forgive the child then. I find the child's performance to be incredibly flat and just not... It did not sell me on any emotional moment in this at all. I mean, if you want, you could always look to Fry's other work, which includes Mike TV in the 2005 remake of Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. No, I have seen that. Yep. But I believe I blocked out most of it. Yep. And we are moving on. This, this This voice cast list is huge, but the characters are all indistinguishable nothings. Yeah. Like, I could give you the list of so, for example, Ethan Sandler voiced Doris, Uncle Fritz, Aunt Petunia, Uncle Spike, Uncle Dimitri, Cousin Laszlo, and the CEO of InventCo. And could you reasonably tell me any of those characters from their names? Oh, yeah. Doris is the hat. I like Doris. Yeah. Um, and now the second. <laughs> the the uncles are the guys in the pots. All right. Yep. I'll give you that. Was he both of them? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Because they're, they're twins. That means you only had to pay for one voice actor. Ah! Um, Look, they're getting their voices by bulk here, okay? Who, uh, the CEO of, of, what was it, Invanco, he's the guy taking the presentation. Yep. Yeah. There you go. I know three of those. Not the ones I'm supposed to remember and find endearing, but... Yeah. It's <laughs> it's just a really tedious movie with a cast full of unlikable shitheads. I want someone to be credited in this movie as just miscellaneous aunts. <laughs> Alright. Yeah. I, we could, I mean, you could carry on about it forever because it is the reason that this movie isn't good, right? Like, the whole story hinges around uh, discovering this family who are everything you've ever dreamed of, and it it would behoove them to make us like this family as much as our main character likes this family. And it just doesn't land, because they've not done any of the work to make these people people, so we don't care about them. Their only trait is that they're cool with wacky stuff. Yeah. Um, and that's just not enough. Uh, but our main character is also just not not a good person. No. I mean, he's a child, I guess, so it's fine. But yeah. he's a particularly thoughtless child, and I feel like you could have made more of the fact that the reason this movie had a villain is because he was thoughtless. Is because he had no regard for how his focus on his shit and his desires and his needs uh impacted on the closest thing he had to a friend or a brother uh 
and that just sort of gets treated as like a... Uh, he does fix it. He makes a token effort to fixing it in the end, so I guess he learned something. Um, but, like, at no point does it actually seem to land on him that it's because he did wrong. He just thinks of it as, I can also prevent this uh, unfortunate coincidence that that affected this person I wish to redeem. Doesn't even really feel like a, this person I care about so much as just a, I want to fix the bad guy. Yeah. Uh, and ain't none of that is a very, is good character arc stuff. There's also questions that it asks of, like, whose fault is what. Like, they make a point that Goob ignores people trying to reach out to him. Yeah, actually, I was curious to know where you landed on this fail, because I know you have strong opinions about A, <laughs> being aware that your actions traumatize others, but also B, you are still responsible for your actions. Yeah, I... When Goob comes in and gives his speech about holding on to hate and letting hate power you, I did say like that. in the background this, but unironically. Yep. <laughs> um, like, Goob's wrong. But also, for people who actually are damaged and traumatized and injured, whatever puts fuel in the tank a lot of the times, okay? Like, there are definitely been times when it is for hate's sake I get out of bed. <laughs> and people can talk rhapsodically about how, oh, that poisons your soul. Fuck you, I don't have one. Uh, and that's in part because it uh, of the trauma that people like that have visited upon me. So, I don't think that the argument... Uh, in this case, is a good one. Like, it's definitely meant to be a here is bad advice from your worst future self, which I kind of like as a thing, but it would have been really cool if, like, Goob rejected that as opposed to being rescued from that by the person who was responsible for the problem in the first place. And and also, Goob's entire situation only happens through immense parental neglect that can only happen in a world where people don't like kids. That's what I was going to bring up, because much like Chicken Little last episode... Uh, this kid's trauma is really directly the fault of the adults who allow him to be physically abused by his peers. Evidently, repeatedly, consistently, like he talks about this as something that happens on the regular. Mm -hmm. So like- no, as you just need to move forward, Fox. Just need to move forward. I, I need to not dwell on that bad stuff. I need to move forward. You've got a broken arm? Oh, you're just dwelling on your broken arm. You need to just move forward. Mmm, yeah. Fuck this movie's stance on bullies. Fuck this movie's stance on privilege. Fuck, th fuck this movie's stance on all sorts of things about what kids need. Because in the end, the thing that saves Lewis is the fact that he's the fucking renaissance. And getting adopted by people with exorbitant amounts of money, apparently. Like, they give him an observatory lab? I guess that's after his invention goes big, so maybe they weren't, like, hopelessly wealthy before that point. But, I mean, Science Lady definitely seems to be doing just fine. Mm -hmm. What's it? Lucille. That's her name. <sighs> Who also seemed to marry a guy who's like 30 years older than her, maybe? Like, he looks like a grandpa, even as a even when he shows up in the current day. This habit of wearing your clothes backwards either resembles a staggering neurodivergence or a fetish. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's kind of the problem with, with cartoon characters who are really bizarre, huh? Yeah, and, like, there are lots of different kinds of weirdness you can have a character represent. Um, I, to bring up Muppet Treasure Island again, Mr. Bimble, an imaginary friend that lives in your finger, 
is one kind of neurodivergence slash weirdness that can be expressed without it being a major impediment on, say, your ability to go to the bathroom. But, I mean, that's that's how all of these fucking characters are unusual, though. Like, why is one of them wearing a, a outfit that's a skyscraper? Why does one of them have an obsession with cannons firing meat? It, it, yeah, I mean, what the the one who teaches frogs to sing is the least weird. And it's all just it's all just stuff you do. It's not about how you are. Do you remember Do you remember web comics from this era? Do you remember monkey cheese humor? I I think I can infer. Like I do remember the whole I, I it's what we call lol random. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Ooh, I'm the penguin of doom copy pasta. Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, for some reason in the early 2000s, we thought it was hilarious to just throw random shit together. And to be fair, a lot of that is, like, 12-year-olds trying their first hand at the internet. And as someone who was 12 on the internet when that was very new, uh, you know, could be worse. Could be worse. It was also super safe for, uh, uh, for people who wanted a particularly clean image. Like, people who thought of themselves as Christians, for example. Yeah. Like, you got a lot of this stuff out of... Uh, Christians who weren't like the other Christians. They were just fun and cool. Yeah. So, overall, character work, F minus, minus, see me. Yeah. Yeah, no, they're all awful. I don't like it at all. Ready to be bummed out about the music? <laughs> well, we already discussed the presence of, uh, of Matchbox 20 just absolutely breaking our dang hearts on this. That being a band that does hold quite a special place for both Talon and myself. The music was, by default, done by Danny Elfman. So all the pieces that weren't done We by... did scoring and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The rest of the soundtrack involves Rufus Wainwright. Don't care. Um, the All-American Rejects. They have one song I like. And They Might Be Giants. They Might Be Giants was one of these? There's a great big beautiful tomorrow, which was an existing Giants song that this movie licensed. But that doesn't change the fact that this movie... <laughs> That's not the one that I said sounded like it was written by a ten-year-old, is it? No, that was the All-American Rejects song at the very end, which definitely sounds like it was written by a ten-year-old. That was terrible. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, it's it's no more or less inspired than what we got last time and the time before that. Like, this era of Disney will just pick a few pop songs that suit and move on. Oh, and to clarify, the Giants version of There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow was a cover of the pre-pre-existing Disney song, which is from the Carousel of oh, Progress. Oh, Christ, it's from Tomorrowland. Yeah. That explains a lot. And there's going to be an undercurrent whenever you start dealing with Disney futurism, which will come up, not that we're going to see it, in the movie Tomorrowland and the stuff like that, where whenever Disney can talk about the future inevitably that future is a future where Disney's vision of the future is the most important thing about the future, which makes for these narratives of the biggest company in the world jerking itself off onto its own face, and in the case of this movie, missing. <laughs> well, I mean, if your goal was to present a utopian future based on the uh, capitalistic excesses of one eccentric genius, then, I mean, you know, I think this movie did exactly what it intended to. Who really liked planes and flying things. Yeah, I mean, this whole Xerost was Disney's future. Yeah. It's, you know, that's, that's, 
part of what does resonate about it in this movie, I guess. But that doesn't save it from all the stuff about it that's garbo. But yeah, it's uh, Disney's futurism was always the like blithe industrial Americanization worship that makes this genre so unpalatable to me because it's just so white and specifically so American. It's it just tastes bad on the palate. Man, sounds like you're holding on to the past there, and you should be instead moving forward with yourself. Now go fetch me a glass of cigarette from beyond the grave. What if my fist kept going forward? I have nothing for whatever, Lynn. Ah, uh, what have we got? I like when the dinosaur caught the flying saucer like a frisbee, and I said, Good the dinosaur's dog. dinosaur's a dog. And then... The bowler hat came off and the dinosaur is in fact a dog. All animals are dogs! Which we didn't get last episode because it was Chicken Little and all the animals were people. Yeah. But in this, the animal, there's only like one, well wait, no frogs. Yeah. Okay, all animals are dogs except the frogs who are mobsters. Ah, uh, this villain has a very upsetting pouchal region. <laughs> In his design... Speaking of looking like you have a bum on the front. <laughs> it's not quite smooth, but it's not... Like, obviously, it's not shaped suggestively. It's just weird and lumpy. And once I looked at it, my brain wanted to look at it in the, the next scene after... Like, it became a focal point. And every time that he moved through a scene in such a way as I could not see his groin, I was very relieved. He does have that snidely whip whiplash build with a front hump. <laughs> it's surprise an undeniable front hump and I don't like it that was Whateverland <laughs> hey Fox yeah we're almost done but you know what the future holds mm. the unbridled excess of unchecked capitalism oh gross yeah uh huh well <sighs> this you're never gonna guess this budget <laughs> Please tell me this wasn't expensive. It looks so cheap and nasty. Uh, he only does that laugh when I'm going to be really disappointed. All right. This costs like $190 million. Wrong. This cost $150 million, the same amount yeah. as Chicken Little. Suspiciously exactly the same as Chicken Little. Isn't that strange? That is strange. What do you want to reckon about the take? Please tell me it bombed. Don't do the laugh. Just tell me it wasn't good. Tell me no one went to see this. This movie's take internationally, like total, all of the chips in a pile was 169 million. Yes! Nice. <laughs> which means this movie made 19 million more than its budget, which is a fucking lie because they absolutely spent more than 19 million marketing it. And it also means that this movie brought home 140 million less than Chicken Little. And Chicken Little wasn't really very successful. Yeah, but you know what that is? That's all the people who saw Chicken Little going, Oh, no, 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 no. No, no, no. Fool me twice. Shame on me. Love... All the people upon whom the craptitude of Disney had not yet landed, even after Home on the Range. You remember how the rescue is down under? Uh-huh. Like, it had a bad opening weekend, and then we checked. It was like, yeah, it was opening aside from Home Alone. So, like... Obviously, it was going to get into a knife fight over a kid's movie. And uh, movies, the movies that beat you at the box office on your opening weekend <laughs> tell you something, right? What kind of wet fart movies did this lose to? 
Hey, uh, the listener? Gonna enjoy this. Have you ever heard of Blades of Glory? Oh, <laughs> it did worse than a weird homophobic Owen Wilson vehicle? It fell but No, it wasn't Owen Wilson. No, it's... Uh, Will Farrell? Yeah. Yeah. Is he not opposite Owen Wilson? I can't remember. He might be. I don't know. He's opposite somebody who's tall and blonde and has that hunky chin. Possibly Owen Wilson? Look, I own a DVD of Blades of Glory. Good story we do. And that DVD was purchased at an op shop. It was. For a dollar. That is correct. Yep. (laughs) I don't think we would have bothered to own that under any other circumstances, even at the time we bought it, which is probably right around 2008. Yeah. I don't feel like they held this one back from DVD for too long, you know? Yeah, so this movie crated. A.O. Scott of the New York Times wrote, Meet the Robinsons oh, is short- Oh, you're gonna do your radio voice. It's oh. retrofuturism. It's 2007. But I can know you're right. It's retrofuturism is the theme of the day. Yeah. A.O. Scott of the New York Times wrote, Meet the Robinsons is surely one of the worst theatrically released animated features issued under the Disney label in some time. <laughs> While Lisa Schwartzbaum of Entertainment Weekly- eat- Entertainment Weekly, like you know that you know that TV show. That is a thing that exists. I do not. Sorry, <clears throat> I don't watch a lot of celebrity TV. While Lisa Schwartzbaum of Entertainment Weekly gave the film a C and described it as, "This is one bumpy ride." So, what's going to save a movie that did terribly in the cinemas? Nothing. Bye bye. <laughs> you forget home home purchase. Home video, oh. except home video isn't video. It's it's home DVD. Right? Yeah. What? It, this must be the time when when VHS was out, right? I remember having a VHS copy of Shrek, but that's like four years ago at this point. Uh, this thing came out on DVD and Blu-ray. The Blu-ray was jammed with options. There was Blu-ray. Yeah, including three wow. D options. Like you could watch the film in three D if you had a three D TV. That'd probably improve it, to be honest. <sighs> it sold about four million copies, Ooh. which is Ooh. no. Yeah, that's that's those are, those are not numbers that save you. That's okay. So sales numbers reported by the company obviously come from sales to retailers because yeah. they're not selling direct to people. Yep. So that's how little faith the people owning the shops had in being able to move this crap, like. That's, I mean, that's a slap in the face for a Disney movie. I like it. Hit him again. (laughs) Empire can take a hit. (laughs) So that's Meet the Robinsons. Well, I hope we never see them again. I did not enjoy my time with them. Uh, I I think we should just not invite them to the next neighborhood watch meeting. There was a sequel planned. (laughs) How would you sequelize this? It's set in the future. From where? Like, is it set in the future that this movie goes to the future, or is it set in the future after the future in this movie? Why, Marty, they gotta go back to the future! No, um, when John Lasseter showed up and became the the head of animation, every sequel got killed. (laughs) Good! They all sucked! And the batch that this one was in also featured the Aristocats too. See, why would you do that? There's no reason... There's nothing in that movie as it is. You can't make another movie. You already didn't have a movie's worth of movie. <laughs> Ugh. Hey, Fox. Yeah? Know what's next? Okay. This time, next is Bolt. Right? Dog, dog movie, movie, dog, dog movie, movie, dog movie, dog movie, dog movie. Dog movie. Dog movie. Woo! <laughs>
I hope it's good. 